I want to speak to you this morning about the river of God and the gift of God. The river of God, which is the gift of God. And I have three different passages of Scripture, which are texts this morning. Um, And the first one is a very simple passage out of Psalm 46, verse 4. And it says, There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. Give me some good eye contact now. There is a river. Okay? There is. I promise you, there is a river. And the streams of that river make glad the city of God, which is, of course, if Hebrews 12, 22 to 24, the city of God is the church. It's the people of God. It's the community of faith. There is a river, the streams where I make glad the city of God. Now Ezekiel is prophesying, talking about the river that flows from under the threshold of the, of, of the temple. And in Ezekiel 47, verse 9c, that means it's the very end of the verse when you see a, an A or B or a C. It says, so where the river flows, everything will live. Where the river flows, everything will live. And finally, I'd like you to... Uh, look at a passage in Acts 1, 4 to 5. Acts 1, 4 to 5. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. He's talking to his disciples. Jesus is talking to his disciples. He says, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John, and then he talks about the gift. What is the gift? He says, John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. I'm about to jump out of my boots because I'm just really excited about this. Now, I have, I have a love affair with three different things. I have a love affair with Jesus, the triune Godhead, of course. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I have a love affair with my bride, Ramona, of 53 years. And I have a love affair with nature, creation. I got that as a Boy Scout, became an Eagle Scout, and I love the out of doors. So I have a lot of river stories to tell. Lots of river stories. Uh, I learned to canoe in the uh, Little Arkansas River in the state of Kansas, many, many years ago, and as a result of that, I have many canoeing stories that I could tell you that have happened on lakes and on rivers. Uh, We canoed it deeply into the uh, boundary waters of Upper Canada. I've canoed in Michigan, Minnesota. I've canoed in uh, Iowa, canoed in Oregon, canoed in Washington. My wife has done a lot of that with me, some of my family members. But uh, only one time did we tip the canoe. And that was the, not my fault, it was the fault of the guy getting in the canoe that stepped on the gunwale, the side of it, and it flipped it, and my sleeping bag got soaked, and I had to sleep that night without a sleeping bag on cold rocks up in northern Canada, and it was not fun. You never want to have that experience. But uh, rivers, actual rivers, I have rafted down rivers, I have uh, floated down rivers in little inner tubes. I have swam in rivers. I have uh, fallen in rivers on two different occasions. Um, And worst of all, I actually almost lost my life one time. Uh, I was a good swimmer. I had completed my swimming merit badge and my life-saving merit badge, and I thought I could handle crossing this river by myself. 
and I tried to do it, and the power of the rapids were so strong that they swept my feet out from under me, and swimming just didn't make a bit of difference. You could not swim. You were just at the mercy of this powerful current. I was swept about 100 yards down the river, slammed into rocks and everything, and eventually caught onto the edge of a edge of a limb that was hanging out, or I don't know where I would be today. But uh, anyway, lots of river stories. But I couldn't help thinking to myself, what is it about water that is so magnetic? Since we're talking about the river of God, what is it about water that is so special and magnetic? We actually had a conversation about this at the breakfast table the other morning when you stop and think about water. Uh, creation actually began, if you read Genesis chapter 1, the very second, the second verse of the entire Bible, Genesis chapter 1 verse 2, it says that the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. Uh, that Hebrew word means fluttering like a bird's wings flutter. Spirit of God fluttering over waters. Your life began when your mother's water broke. If you're an adult, you probably are about 57 to 60% water. Your body is about 57 to 60% water. Our planet that we live on is 71% water. Now, we have to drink to survive. You can go without food for over 40 days, for a long, long time without food. But without water, you cannot go very long. Now think about this, people landscape with water, don't they? They have bird baths and water fountains, kids play in sprinklers, maybe you're fortunate enough to have a swimming pool and you can swim. Stop and think about where people go on vacation. Ask people where they go on vacation, there's almost always an ocean, a lake, or a river involved because people like to go where water is. As a matter of fact, just life in general, you can't, you can't live without water. The Bible actually speaks of the hydrological cycle, which is a scientific process of how water evaporates and goes into the heavens, gets in the clouds, rains down, becomes dew, and then rains back down as either rain or snow, and then seeks into the earth, and then flows to the oceans, and then the oceans evaporate, and you get this hydrological cycle. Before science ever discovered that, the Bible speaks about it several times. Bible speaks about pre-scientific facts frequently and all the time. My wife and I have been since, you know, we're sort of locked, locked down and people aren't traveling as much. Um, we have been watching Rick Steves Europe on YouTube. I don't know if any of you have heard of that before. But we've been traveling Europe, all the nations of Europe, and it's just been amazing as we go into all the different countries. One of the takeaways we've received from that is that wherever major cities, wherever there's major populations, those cities were always built next to rivers for commerce and for tourism and for uh, even for military defense, rivers have been used. So in the natural world, life without water is impossible. Water is essential for human survival. Without water, there's nothing but death. So what is true in the natural, I'm going to suggest to you, is also true in the spiritual. There is a river, the streams where have made glad the city of God. Now, there's a lot of biblical rivers, and so we'll see if they're talking about this. Maybe they're talking about the Euphrates River. Anybody heard of the Euphrates River? It's 1,730 miles long. It starts in the snow melt of the mountains in Turkey. It flows down. It actually, in Genesis 2, goes through the Garden of Eden and flows down and eventually meets the Tigris River. It's mentioned in Scripture, even in, in prophecy, the Old Testament. It's mentioned in Revelation chapter 16. That's not the river. 
The Euphrates River, even though it's biblically and historically and on the world map, that's not the river that Psalm 46 is talking about. Well, maybe it's the Nile River. You know, the Nile River is a really unique river, and it is a biblical river. It's mentioned in Scripture all the time. You probably remember some of the stories. The Nile River is unique in that whereas most rivers flow north to south, the Nile River flows south to north. It starts way down in southern Africa, and it goes 4,184 miles all the way north through Egypt and out into the Great Sea or the Mediterranean Sea. You remember some of the stories of the Nile? Moses and the bulrushes where Pharaoh's uh, daughter found little Moses. Prophet Jeremiah talks about it. Prophet Zechariah talks about it. The Nile River was... Uh, where the first plague was, the, the, how many plagues were there? Ten plagues? I, I forget how many plagues there were. The first plague was when the Nile River, the water was turned to blood. So the Nile River, 4,184, the Nile River is not the river that Psalm 46.4 is talking about. So somebody says, I know what it is. It's the Jordan River. The Jordan River is mentioned more than any other river in the Bible. It's got to be the Jordan River. Uh, the Jordan River is a little short guy. He's only 156 miles long, and he flows through Israel, basically. Goes through the Sea of Galilee, which is fresh water, flows through fresh water all the way down the Jordan River, and ends up in the Dead Sea, which is salt water, which is sort of an unusual thing, isn't it? Fresh water flowing into the Dead Sea. My wife and I have been to the Dead Sea. It's true what they say. There are actual pillars of salt. You know, you can walk out on the water on these little salt islands, or if you get in the Dead Sea and just lie back, you float. You don't, I mean, you float. You don't have to work at it. It's so thick with salt, you just float. But, you know, in spite of all the scriptures about uh, the Jordan River, Jesus was baptized there. John the Baptist did his baptizing there. Um, Elisha uh, healed the Syrian commander, Naaman, dipped in the river seven times. Uh, there, there's all kinds of stories about the Jordan River. That's not the river. That's not the river. And I know you know that. Before I tell you, you know that that's the case. Now, let me talk to you about the river that the Holy Spirit is talking about. This river is older. It's longer. It's wider. It's deeper. Oh, so much deeper is this river than any river we've mentioned in the Bible so far. You can't locate this river on a map. This river has no longitude and it has no latitude. This river that is mentioned throughout the Word of God, its waters are more refreshing, more healing, more thirst quenching, more powerful, more life-giving than any other river. Isaiah spoke about it. Zechariah spoke about it. Ezekiel spoke about it. Joel spoke about it. Just one of them is Isaiah 44, verse 3. If you want to look at just one of the scriptures about this. For I will pour water. Notice the word pour, because we're going to hear that word very many times. I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessings on your descendants. Now, I need to make sure you understand this is not a mystical river. This is not a symbolic river. This is not a metaphor. This is a real river. This is an actual river. And it's named, the river has got a name, and it's named in the book of Revelation, chapter 22, verses 1 to 2. 
Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal. Boy, we didn't have those in Kansas. The rivers back there were brown and muddy. The angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as, clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. And verse 2 says, Down the middle of that great street of the city on each side the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. If, you, if your spirit even begins to grasp that, about this crystal clear, pure river flowing out of the throne of God and in the midst of it, this massive tree, the leaves for the healing of the nations. I haven't figured out yet how the tree can be on both sides of the river, but it is. It's in the middle of the river. It's on both sides of the river, but this is a river. Now, there's, there's some passages here, I, and I'm, this is, I've got four scriptures back to back. I just, you just have to read John in chapter 4, verses 9 to 10. He's talking to the Samaritan woman. And remember, this is a real river now. He's talking to the Samaritan woman, John 4, 9 to 10. And this is what it says. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. There's a story behind that. We won't go into it. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Let's see if there's some more there. Is that the end of it? Just 4, 9 to 10. That's the end of it. Now I want to go to Peter talking in Acts 2, 38 to 39. Peter, Acts 2, 38 to 39. Peter replied, this is after the outpouring of the Spirit in the book of Acts. Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive what? You will receive the gift, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Many of you have never associated the river with the gift of God. We're approaching Christmas time. It's a time of gift giving. If you can have any gift at all in the world, here is the gift of God, the promised gift of God. And it says, the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, all whom the Lord your God will call. Then let's go to Acts 10, 44 to 45. While Peter was speaking... These were, this is when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the Gentile believers. The, the Jewish Christians didn't expect this to happen to the Gentiles, but it did. While Peter was speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter, that'd be the Jewish believers, were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. This gift of God, this living water, is a real river. It comes to fill and to overflow us with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, I want to ask the question this morning, what did Jesus think about the river? What level of importance did he put on the river? Okay, was this just a, a side issue? Was this just one among many doctrines that, that he would espouse, one of his several teachings? You know, as a boy growing up and as a young man, Jesus knew that Joel had prophesied about the outpouring of the Spirit. Jesus would have known that. I want to look at that, Joel 2, 28 to 29. 
And afterwards, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out. There's the word pour again. I will pour out my spirit in those days. Now, Jesus also knew about Ezekiel and the great river that, flew, that flowed out from the, the temple of God, where it says, wherever the river flows, everything will live. Jesus knew that the Spirit was not talking about a drip of water. He was talking about a deluge. He wasn't talking about a trickle. He was talking about a torrent. He wasn't flirting with the idea of just a little bit of water, but he was talking about a flood, a firestorm of the power of the Spirit coming upon disciples and upon believers. Jesus knew his commission to public ministry awaited this encounter with the Spirit of God. For 30 years, he'd been in Nazareth, and he'd been growing in love and wisdom and strength and learning about a relationship with his father. But beloved, the bottom line is this. Jesus was dependent on this external coming upon him of the power of the Holy Spirit. One of the takeaways from the book of John, John 5.30, one of my favorite verses and a very short verse, it simply says, by myself, I can do nothing. Jesus, walking in his humanity, having disrobed himself of his divinity, said, I can't do anything by myself. I, Allie, you said it standing up here. Jesus said, I've got to go away. It's expedient that I go away. If I don't go away, the Holy Spirit won't come. And if the Holy Spirit doesn't come as disciples, you're going to be without tools. You won't be equipped. You won't have anything. You need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Not to be saved, of course. It's not required to be saved, but it's to equip you for ministry. So important was this to Jesus. So central, such a deep core value that he said, I've got to go away. You know, there are things you just don't do until prerequisites are accomplished first. And he's telling them, you got to go wait for the Holy Spirit to come on you. I, you know, Andrew and Allie have four children, and the youngest one right now is little Paxton. And we go on stroller rides and walks all the time. And whenever we come to a street, we stop. And when I'm holding her hand, I say, now, what do we do here, Paxton. We never, ever will cross this street if we don't look both ways first. Not once, but a couple times. And let's make sure before, you know, teenager, there's, you don't drive until you get a license and until you have insurance. You don't, it's something you don't do. There's a prerequisite. Well, in the kingdom of God, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, there is a prerequisite which Jesus tried to explain to the, now, he's talking to believers too. Don't, don't miss that point. He's not talking to unbelievers. He's talking to disciples that have walked with him for three years and seen all of his miracles and all the majesty of his ministry. But he says in, in Luke 24, 49, he says this. He says, I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until, until you have been clothed with power from on high. And then finally, he says in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, a passage which you all know so well, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and under the ends of the earth. The experience of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a second work of God's grace after salvation. To be sure, you cannot be saved 
without the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. The Holy Spirit is essential even to salvation. It says in the Bible that the Holy Spirit will convict us of sin. He will convict us of sin. He's at work with us. The Holy Spirit is with us. And then the Holy Spirit comes in us. But I have to tell you, there's a difference. There is a difference when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Not when he's with you. Not when he's in you. But when he fills you to overflowing and comes upon you. I didn't take time to set up the illustration, but I've often talked about it before. If we had a table here and there was a basin so that water didn't spill out and go everywhere, and we had a vessel in it, a clear see-through vessel like a glass, a tumbler, you know, a glass to drink out of, that's you, the vessel. I won't take time to quote the scriptures. There's a couple passages that talk about us as being the vessel of the Lord. And if I had a pitcher of water over here, the water is with the glass. It's with the glass, right? Or if I pour some water in it and fill it a third full or a quarter full, even three-fourths full, then the water's in the glass. It says that in the book of John. It says the Holy Spirit is with you and will be in you. But the, but the scriptures speak about something way beyond that too. The scriptures speak about you tipping that pitcher of water into that glass that is three-fourths full, seven-eighths full, 95% full, 100% full, and you just keep pouring. You just keep pouring. And the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Check that out in Scripture. Do a Bible study on the Holy Spirit not being with you or in you, but coming up on you. Like it said in Luke 24, 49 earlier, he clothes you. He literally comes upon you and clothes you with the Holy Spirit and with power. And this is the promised gift that is for us. Why John the Baptist in Mark 1, 7 said, I'm going to baptize you with water, John the Baptist said, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And that's in all three synoptic gospels. That very same passage is Matthew 3.11, Luke 3.16. It's there over and over and over. Jesus was saying this to men and women who were already believers. They were already followers. Don't, don't miss that point. It's so, so important. Then, so anyway, Acts 2.4, you know it. I'm not going to take the time to read it. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, suddenly the sound of a rushing mighty wind Tongues of fire came upon them. Now, this was the birthday party of the church. We all celebrate Christmas, right? The birthday of Jesus. Why don't we celebrate the birthday party of the church? This was the beginning of the church. This was the birth of the church when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost at the feast. Talk about a birthday party. I would like a birthday party like this. I would like a birthday party where there was a violent wind blowing across me and through all the kids that were there with me. And I would like a birthday party where tongues of fire set upon us. I would like a birthday party where boldness would come upon the people that were there. Where Peter, who was a coward and who was afraid of the little girl by the fire and afraid of anybody that suggested he was a disciple of Jesus. The coward who ran away even though he'd spent all this time with Jesus. And even though he said, everybody else may deserve 
desert you, but I won't. I'll stick with you. But he did. He deserted Jesus in the 11th hour. And then on this day, when the Holy Spirit came upon him, he was transformed and he was a different man. And all of a sudden, he's standing up and he's preaching to a crowd of 3,000 who are converted and come to him. Because you see, Pentecost is one of the seven Hebrew feasts of the Hebrew calendar. Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, Pentecost, trumpets, atonement, and tabernacle, the seven feasts of the Hebrew year. And on the Feast of Pentecost, which is 50 days after Passover, the Holy Spirit was poured out, and it was a dedication of first fruits. Pentecost is a harvest festival, and it's a dedication of first fruits. And the 3,000 that were saved on the day of Pentecost were the first fruits dedicated to the Lord. And I need to make sure that we understand that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not so we can be exclusive. We're a special people. You know, we've got more than other Christians. That's, that's, God forgive that thought. The Holy Spirit doesn't come upon us to make us more special. It comes upon us to make us more useful. To make us available. Ezekiel, uh, Ecclesiastes 1.7. Ecclesiastes 1.7 says the river flows into the sea. The river flows into the sea. You know what the purpose of the river is? In prophecy, seas stand for large, unregenerate masses. If you study prophecy, it's best to always, when you study prophecy, it's always best to let the Bible interpret itself. And if you look at seas, large oceans, they represent symbolically in Scripture large, unregenerate masses. And the river, the purposes of rivers, the purpose of the river of God is to flow into the sea of Puyallup and Pierce County. And the northwest, the Pacific Northwest, and the nations, and the nations of the world—that's what the river is to do. It's to flow into your neighborhood, and through the streets of your cities, and in through your schools, and through the businesses. And whenever revival breaks out and the Spirit of God moves, that's what you see happen. You can read it in story after story where they close the bars and the pubs, and where where policemen. You can, read, you can read these true stories, these authentic stories where the Holy Spirit baptizes people in His Spirit and all of a sudden the policemen are sitting around, they have nothing to do. The jails have nobody in them and there's just nothing for law enforcement to do. That's the answer to the problem we have today, isn't it? It's not defund the police department. What we need to do is just ask the Holy Spirit to visit His people and let it flow through the city and crime, tr crime diminishes. It's a reality. It's a historical fact. I want to fast forward to the 20th century, to 1905, 1906, to the story of what God did in America about 120 years ago now. Exactly next month, it'll be exactly 120 years ago. Charles Parham started a school in Topeka, Kansas called Bethel Bible School and Healing Home. He discovered that... Uh, the Holy Spirit was significant in terms of boldness to witness and equipping for ministry. And he went on a preaching assignment for three days to Kansas City. And he told his students, he said, I want you to study the scriptures. And when I come back, you tell me, what is, what is the sign of the baptism of the Holy Spirit? He returned and the students all came to him. And every one of them, without exception, studying on their own, said, well, 
it appears from Scripture that everybody spoke in tongues after they were baptized in the Holy Spirit. God gave them a prayer language or a la- another language, a real language. And so he called a Saturday night watch service on the evening of December the 31st, 1900. And I'd like to read to you what the history books say, what's recorded in newspapers and in his private journal. This is actually what it says. While he was away for three days preaching in Kansas City, his students, through fasting, prayer, and study of the Scriptures, decided unanimously that speaking with other tongues constituted the one and only biblical proof of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. When Parham returned and heard his students answer that, he, he called this service on December 31st. During this service, one of the students, a lady named Agnes Osmond, here you go, ladies, bless you for your brokenness and your heart and hunger and thirst, asked Parham to lay hands on her and pray for her to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I have her picture here in front of me. Parham wrote this in his journal. I laid my hands on her and prayed. I had scarcely repeated three dozen sentences when a glory fell on her. A halo seemed to surround her head and her face, and she began speaking the Chinese language and was unable to speak English for three days. When she tried to write in English to explain what was happening to her, she wrote in Chinese. But she had never learned the language. She had never written in it before. And copies of that very thing are still held in museums. And the newspapers actually show it if you would want to go to Topeka, Kansas and look at the newspapers. During these meetings, it was later claimed that the students spoke in 21 known languages, including Swedish, Russian, Bulgarian, Japanese, Norwegian, French, Hungarian, Italian, and Spanish. According to Parham, none of his students had studied any of these languages, and they were all confirmed as authentic by native speakers. In 1905, Parham started another school in Houston, Texas, a Bible school. It only had 25 students. It wasn't a big school. But one of those students was William J. Seymour. Seymour was born in Louisiana. He was the son of a slave. He was short. He was stocky. He was blind in one eye from a disease. He was African-American. But he was graced with a meek and gentle spirit. Those that heard him preach said he couldn't preach at all. He definitely wasn't charismatic or Pentecostal. I mean, when he preached... One, it's, it's recorded in the history books, it's, he could preach for 45 minutes. It was like listening to a fence post. That's what it actually says. Seymour was set on fire by Parham's teaching on the baptism of the Holy Spirit, even though he had not encountered the Holy Spirit himself with a personal experience like that. So he accepted a call to pastor in Los Angeles. It was a former Baptist group, and when he preached on the baptism of the Holy Spirit, they paddle-locked the church and wouldn't let him in anymore. He now found himself penniless and was, had this inferno burning inside of him. And so he started home meetings in the home of a family named Edward Lee, who felt sorry for him. He was a skeptic. He didn't believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but he just felt sorry for him. So he let him have meetings in his home. They eventually moved the meetings to the Asbury home on Bonnie Bray Street. Now, I have been in that home. Uh, Andrew has been in that home. I know here's a picture of it. Um, it was... It's now March 1906, okay? That home is still sitting there. March 1906, shortly before Easter. And here's what the historical record says. At the beginning, the meetings were attended by Negro washwomen and a few husbands. They were joined later by hungry white seekers as news began to spread. I just want to 
pause and give you this short thought before I move on. How indebted we are. How deeply, deeply indebted we are to those African-American hungry seekers for God who got on their face in Los Angeles, California in 1906 and cried out for an authentic experience in the river of God because it has transformed our world. The color line was washed away. People weren't meeting. Blacks and whites weren't meeting together in Los Angeles in the churches of the time. But when the Holy Spirit broke out at the Azusa Street Mission and the Bonnie Bray House, they didn't even think about color because the color line was washed away. It is now April the 9th, 1906. It is a day that changed the world. Seymour was on his way to a meeting at 214 Bonnie Bray House. He stopped by Edward Lee's home, who was the skeptic. And during the night, Lee had had a vision about how he could be baptized in the Spirit and speak in other tongues. And so he said, Seymour, will you please, Elder Seymour, will you please lay your hands on me and pray for me? Which he did. He felt, and, and Lee fell to the floor under the power of the Spirit and began to speak in another language as the river of life, the promised gift of God came on him. They together rushed to the Asbury home for the meeting. They shared the good news. Faith exploded. Suddenly, Seymour and seven others fell to the floor under the power of the Spirit, and they all began speaking in other tongues. One of the people baptized in the Spirit that day was a young lady, an African-American young lady by the name of Jenny Moore, who ultimately married Elder Seymour. Under the anointing of the Spirit. I, see, we began a series here in the church about praise and worship and how that leads to the presence of God and how the presence of God leads to the power of God. The baptism of the Holy Spirit gives you the liberty and freedom to really praise the Lord and to move into this place where the river flows. Under the anointing of the Spirit, Jenny Moore sat down at an old upright piano. I've sat at that piano. She sat down at an old upright piano and began playing beautifully while singing in Hebrew, a language she had never learned before. She had never played the piano in her life and had never had a single music lesson in her life. This is what the eyewitness reports talked about when the Holy Spirit was poured out on April the 9th, 1906. He says, they shouted for three days and three nights, 24 hours a day. People came from everywhere, noise, it spread so far, the whole world started showing up. There was no way of getting near the house. Anyone who came in would fall under the power of the Spirit, and the whole city was stirred. They praised, they shouted, they danced, until literally the foundation of the front porch, you can see it there, it gave way and totally collapsed and fell down that hillside. Crowds grew too large. They, they located an old abandoned building that was 40 by 60 and two stories high. It's the, it was a former stockyard. It was a former place where they made tombstones. It was a former stable. It was in an advanced state of repair. The windows were broken. They cleaned it up. They put sawdust on the floor. They stretched wooden planks between nail kegs for seating. They put two empty crates up there for the pulpit. And it became known as the Azusa Street Mission. Here's a picture of it, the Azusa Street Mission. Church services were held here every night and all day long for three years. Spiritual shockwaves literally raced around the world, from L.A. to the nation to the world. People came from everywhere to witness the fruit of the Spirit of God as it was moving, moving in miraculous supernatural power. The negative press 
was so strong that it actually served to be free advertising for the move of God. They were called weird, wild, fanatical, mad worshipers, howling, swaying back and forth, people standing on knees, prostrate on the floor, singing, preaching, prophesying, speaking in tongues. The fire department was called out several times because eyewitnesses saw flames over the building. The child welfare department tried to close the meetings because of unsupervised children all around day and night. The health department tried to close them down because of cramped quarters and unsanitary. It was dangerous to the public. The devil wanted a lockdown. The devil wanted a lockdown. And as you cannot cork a volcano, you cannot stop the genuine move of God. The river of life was at flood stage, washing away sin and sickness and the racial color line. The walls of the inside of that building right there were so many crutches and wheelchairs were hanging around. They couldn't put all the things from the divine healings that were taking place. In spite of thousands and thousands of conversions and myriads of miracles, this modern-day Pentecostal outpouring was mocked and ridiculed just like it was in Acts chapter 2 where they called him drunk. God's promised gift, the river of the Spirit. I want to ask this question. Did it last? Did it last? Now 114, 120 years later, did it last? Was it fakery? Was it fanaticism? Was it cultic? What are the facts? What are the facts? Both secular and religious historians agree there has never been in the history of our planet a movement of any kind so powerful, so dominant, so forceful, so massive, and so lasting. Nothing has equaled its breadth and scope and power to transform not fascism, not communism, not socialism, not Buddhism, not Mormonism, not Islam, not the Enlightenment, not the Industrial Revolution, not the Technology Revolution. From its humble beginnings, this little stream has become a surging river that is sweeping the continents of the world. It has touched every language group, every nation, and every culture. There is a river. There is a river. It's not symbolic. It's not mystical. It's not a metaphor. There is a river, and the streams of that river make glad the city of God. From an insignificant number of 120 people on the birthday of the church in Acts chapter 2, spirit-baptized, spirit-filled Christians today number over 700 million. That is 10% of the planet's population, one out of 10 people. It is the fastest-growing Christian movement in the earth today. To give you an idea of how it is non-sectarian and moves across, the Catholics have embraced it through their charismatic Catholic renewal. Over in Cuba right now today, did you know that 75% of the pastors that lead Methodist churches, the pastors that lead Methodist churches in Cuba, 75% of them are Pentecostal and filled with the Spirit. I'm going to close with just these final thoughts. A.W. Tozer said, before we can be filled with the Spirit, the desire to be filled must be all-consuming. It must be the biggest thing in your life, so intrusive as to crowd out everything else. Just as the law in the Old Testament forbade touching anything that is dead, like corpses spread disease and whatnot, dead religion is life without the Spirit. Religion is what you have left when the Spirit leaves the building. Religion is what you have left when the Spirit leaves the building. 
And I want to say that this to those of you that are listening that are embracing the seeker-sensitive movement and the contemporary everything movement. Nothing wrong with that. But I want to say this, it's never enough. It is never enough to change your music, to add a coffee bar, to take off your tie so you can be more casual. That's never enough. You cannot replace the river. You cannot replace the gift, the promised gift of God. Today, we have sound systems. They didn't. We have websites. They didn't. We have nice buildings. They didn't. Today, we have a New Testament Bible. They didn't. The early church didn't have a New Testament, but they had Jesus' testimony that the Holy Spirit would come. I'm going to just close with this very small passage about hosting the presence of God. And it's a personal testimony of Dwight Moody. This is directly out of Dwight Moody's journal where he's talking about he's planning for a trip to England and he's walking down Wall Street in New York. He has been crying out, crying out for the Holy Spirit to fill him. Because even though he's preaching and having a quasi-successful ministry, he writes, I was crying all the time that God would fill me with his spirit. Well, one day while walking down the city street in New York, oh, what a day. I cannot describe it. I seldom refer to it. It is almost too sacred an experience to name. Just like Paul had an experience in which he never spoke about it for 14 years. He said, I can only say that God revealed himself to me and I had such an experience of his love and his joy that I had to ask him to stay his hand. And when I went to preaching again, this is what I wanted you to hear. When I went to preaching again, the sermons were not different. I did not present any new truths. And yet now, hundreds and thousands were converted. And he closes by saying, I would not now be placed back where I was before that blessed experience. If you should give me all the world, it would be as small as the dust of a balance. So the obvious question is, how do I become baptized with the Holy Spirit? And that was part of this message, but it'll have to wait till next week. So let's stand to say goodbye, shall we? If you're here, by the way, and your heart is aching and you are so hungry to be filled with the Spirit, after the service is closed, you're dismissed, be sure and wear your masks. Um, if you want to come forward, I'll just hang around here for a little while and we'll pray with you because one of the secrets to being baptized with the Holy Spirit is not only desire and hunger and thirst, it's ask. You just ask. Father, thank you for your presence that we feel right now in this room. Thank you for your power that we hunger and seek after and desire. Fill us with your Spirit. River of God, flow through us and upon us. Come, Holy Spirit. Give us boldness to witness. Equip us for ministry to advance the kingdom of God in our city, in our community, in our neighborhood, to our family and to our friends, and to the ends of the earth. We love you. Refresh us, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You are dismissed. God bless you.